episode 116 of coming up next friends as always if you're not already please subscribe on itunes stitcher or on podbean and you can find links to do so at comingupnext.com.au there's the whole back catalog of coming up next episodes interviews with people like uh, molly meldrum cat stewart glendon ivan some of the world's top creatives all talking about their lives and what makes them silly And while you're doing that subscribing away, uh, please also leave a five-star rating and review. Uh, I know it seems weird and silly, but it really does help to up the visibility of the show. And I can then keep bringing you amazing guests like this week's guest, as I welcome Darcy Prendergast to the Chat Cave for episode 116. Darcy is the founder of Melbourne-based production company Oh Yeah Wow!, Uh, who have produced some really, truly groundbreaking music videos and content for some top artists, as well as moving into narrative work and TV commercials. To check out their work, including the pieces that we chat about in this episode, head to oyearwow.com. to be at a point in your career where you're able to travel for work where you where you're kind of getting employed to do gigs internationally and then you can you can kind of work a holiday and a a film festival around it as well yeah it's um it's it's pretty amazing really like the philosophy that's always underpinned OUL's work is that you know we try and do the best possible job we can you know if if it's a ten thousand dollar budget we try and triple that on screen um, and in the early days, we put our own wages back in to try and just try and get beyond this kind of quagmire um, of the Australian film industry. We want to try and, and reach an international audience and level. And so um, I guess, though, that early investment um, kind of got us recognized with a few music videos we did. And so off the back of those, we, we actually did far more work abroad than we did in Australia, which is kind of strange. Now it's kind of come back around a little bit. But, um, but yeah, now we're kind of hopefully back on the international bandwagon again and sort of it's been a little while it's been about a year since i've done a job a job abroad but um yeah it's good to, good to be back good yeah. to be traveling again there's a bit of a difference between i guess working out of um somewhere in france and working out of brunswick yeah i mean i love brunswick you know it's my home <laughs> but um but yeah by and the same token it's not paris house you've got here yeah 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 well, it's a fu- it's a fun little fun little space um as i said you're walking in it's an old boxing gym we kind of completely renovated. So when we got here, there were like 20, you know, four by four mirrors on the wall. Um, you know, there's like, there's an old boxing ring right where we're sitting, actually. Mm. Um, so this meeting room was a boxing ring. Yeah, wow. Um, so it was a really kind of weird little space back in the day. So we had to paint the whole place and renovate it ourselves. And it was a, it was a big undertaking, but um, one that's paid dividends. Mm. It's a big risk that time we did it as well. We had a Nickelodeon kid series called Superfresh, which is a kid series I, I kind of concocted back in the day. Um, <laughs> My dog's just wandered into the room. Um, How did she open the door? Yeah, she's like a she's like a Velociraptor. Right. She she knows how to open doors. Um, <laughs> clever girl. Clever girl. Um, yeah. So um, 
it was, it was a big risk back in the day. We, we were in our old studio and it just wasn't enough space to house the talent we required to make that show. So we had about 20 people on that uh, and we were in a warehouse space that was just freezing cold in winter, crazy hot in summer. Um, and we just realized we needed to kind of take the plunge and make, make a bit of a, a bit of change. So uh, we moved into here without any idea about how we're going to pay for the rent that was four times as much as our old space. But um, again, it was just one of those risks where we're like, well, if we never do it, then we're never going to know. Um, so we kind of put it all on the line for a little while and we're still here. Three, yeah, later, three years later. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's, uh, you know, that's quite emblematic of the way that you need to approach a life in, a, in the kind of creative, in creative fields. You know, you just got to kind of take action and trust that it'll work out. Yeah, trust in the gods. That's right. I mean, it's, it's just, it's so, it's so weird though. Like, oh, yeah, wow, could have gone under so many times. And like, you know, I never really got into business to, to start a business. Like, I, I, never, I never got into this film industry to, to, to be a manager or to be a guy who runs a company, but, um, it's just, it's just weird how it's, you know, back in the early days, we would, we would kind of split everything down the, down the, down the middle for So through five people on a $15,000 job, we'd just take three grand each. Um, so it was like this very egalitarian workplace. Um, and that's the only way it could have operated in the early days because there were five guys that were equally invested, um, you know, in, in the work and, and our careers. And so, um, back in the early days, we, we just, run every project like that which of course didn't account for overheads at all so of, of my cut i'd be paying the studio rent <laughs> i'd be managing i'd be answering the emails daily and all that sort of stuff so i didn't really and i was totally fine with that and um you know never never really took a fee for for managing but um and now as it currently sits like i don't manage anymore at all which is kind of great because i can get back to the creative roots and just focus on directing just focus on script writing and trying to you know get my features up the ground that sort of thing so um yeah, it's it's kind of it's a weird it's been a really weird journey, you know the the whole oh yeah wow kind of trajectory. So starting, I guess tracking back a little bit, um, you grew up in Backus Marsh. Yeah, um, Backus Marsh, small country town, um, not really renowned for its arts or its art scene, but um, had a good little kind of collective of friends who were pretty into the arts and pretty arty and we collectively kind of banded together and and you know would weekly kind of get together and paint and make things and my mum was super super creative um every week she was doing like something new so mosaicing or pottery or um you know painting just just a really really um creative woman uh and my dad was this amazing storyteller um and you know i guess he's an amazing storyteller a but also had amazing stories b um mm. he was an old um old zookeeper he'd worked at the zoo for 30 years but oh, wow. prior to that he worked at a place called the Bacchus marsh lion safari which was a um like this kind of crazy drive-through zoo um where you drive your own car into a field of lions and tigers oh, wow. <laughs> um and they'd jump all over your car that rip mirrors off that you know they'd just go to town Jeez. basically yeah um and I'm actually kind of just in the process now of, of putting together a feature documentary on that. Hmm. So I've kind of been gathering a whole bunch of source material and, um, and interviews and that sort of thing. So just kind of at the very, very start of that project. But, um, but dad was attacked there on several occasions and, you know, it was just mental. Like the, the stuff that was kind of, um, that kind of went down there back in the day. Mm. Mm. But um, apart from that, Backus Marsh is pretty boring. <laughs> and I had to get out. Like, I was just like, nah, you know, this is, this is, this is enough time spent here. I need to, need to move on. Apart from the insane 
wildlife open air safari place where you drive your own car in that was, that was before i was born just, right. just for the record yeah <laughs> that didn't last too long Fair <laughs> enough. um so what sort of i guess what sort of things were you engaged with then that sort of fed your own creativity when you were in this in that environment i guess um there was a lot of uh, there's a lot of imagination that was kind of happening and one of the features i'm writing is is very much based in back of smash but like there'd be a lot of times where we'd just be out in the just the wastelands of Bacchus Marsh in the middle of fields, like like down the apple orchards, like throwing apples at each other and whatever. It was just like we, we had this kind of classic country kid upbringing where we're jumping off cliffs into the creek and, and you know, ch- chasing snakes and building bike jumps and like lighting fires and all that kind of crap. Um, but it was kind of like we, we had this sort of underpinning of imagination. We like built cubby houses and we kind of had these like very, very wild imaginations where we, we made mundane situations kind of exciting and fun. Like we'd always just imagine the police were there and we're like, we'd always be running from the cops, even though <laughs> we all fully knew that there were no cops there. Like someone would just yell at cops and that would just kind of spur on like, you know, the next three hours of adventure trying to run and hide. And so everyone, everyone like I think, you know, at this, at this time, like, you know, at this age, everyone would be like, yeah, there were no cops. Like everyone knows that. But at that time, it just made the adventure a little bit more fun, a little bit more yeah, dangerous. Yeah. Up the um, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess there was that, but there was also kind of like I had a really, really strong um, like penchant for drawing. Like I really loved illustration and I really loved sculpture. Um, and I kind of there was this sort of really seminal moment when I was when this is kind of like family time when we all sat down and watched Wallace and Gromit. Hmm. Um, and Dad's like, this is how they did it. Like, it's the most incredible piece of art. We, we all need to watch it as a family. So we sat down at ABC. We watched Wallace and Gromit, um, and it was just it blew me away. And I'm like, hang on, they they sculpted all this, they made this, and they moved it frame by frame. This is wild. Um, and um, yeah, and from that point on, I kind of I, I sort of all all the because I did I did a lot of creative writing as a kid as well, and um, you know, not that it's really anything to be. Um, bragged about but like you know won the creative writing you know awards at school and stuff mm. like that so it was like um, positive encouragement yeah 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 that's right yeah um, so I, I guess all, all these kind of things started to come together like I love creative writing I love storytelling I love drawing sculpture cartoons and um, and then the kind of the missing element of that was animation really and mm. so that was um, that was um, that was my dog sorry um <laughs> Uh, Should be a character in this episode. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> Come here. Um, yeah, so that was um, th- those three kind of elements came together, and, and the more I worked at it, like it was this sort of you know I, I stopped socialising and, and found a real or stopped causing trouble more so, <laughs> and found a real purpose in my life, um, and started to really hone and focus on claymation. So I, I'd spend. Friday and Saturday nights in my bedroom making like really rudimentary clay animation cartoons instead of being out and being drunk and being a little little maniac. Um, so it, it sort of changed the trajectory of my life, and um, from that point on, I just kind of gave myself over to the uh, to the world of clay animation. Do you remember the first time, and it may be in the claymation sense or or otherwise? Remember the first time you produced or created or entertained, or, you know, some, something that really gave you that sort of drive or that experience. I made this like three second animation called Pickle Man. Like <laughs> it was, it was just, it was literally three seconds and it was like this green, very phallic green character. It was a pickle. 
and I was kind of just testing out how to do lip sync. So, um, and I and I recorded my voice just saying like I am Pickle Man, and then like and, and then just you know lip synced to that and tried my hand at, at making a character talk, and it worked out so incredibly well. And I was just like, what the hell? And it, it was the first time where I was like, I can actually do this. I can actually. It's, it's not unachievable. Like mm. I can actually make a character talk. I can breathe life into this weird little phallic pickle. That's <laughs> incredible, right? And so from there, I kind of, I got more and more confident with, with lip syncing and, and, you know, just kind of general animation. And um, I made this kind of film called Couch Potato, which was my graduate film in year 12. Uh, and that piece of crap screened alongside of Harvey Crumpet at this kind of little weird festival in Melbourne. And, um, yeah, wow. And that's how I met Adam and that's how um, we kind of came to be friends. And he, he was like this amazing, amazing, generous mentor. I mean, I, I was sending him these kind of like 400 word long emails and <laughs> he would just graciously reply to every one of my questions. And I'm like, how does this guy... Like, and this is when he's like, you know, being nominated for an Oscar and like traveling the world and he's finding the time to reply to my like questions about, you know, which armature wire should I use? And like, what plasticine do you use? And blah, blah, blah. Like an amazing man. <laughs> mm, that's incredible yeah when you were you know you said you, you made Couch Potato as your kind of graduating um, film at, while you're in high school it was media and um, animation and something was that something that you were actively pursuing while you were at school uh, yes and no like I kind of I discovered clay animation in, in, a, in a relatively young oh, young age around 16 or so I think um, but didn't have we didn't have a video camera at my first school, my first high school. I, I swapped schools in year twelve. Um, I got a scholarship to a place where they did have a video camera, um, <laughs> so I was able to actually start. Because up until then, I was just kind of making these characters and making these puppets and these stories without any way of actually animating them. So didn't have a camera. My family was pretty damn poor. My my high school before that was was poorer again. So it was just, there was no outlet for me to actually bring these characters to life or start learning about animation um, in, a, in a practical sense. Uh, I could read a lot of theory, but, but couldn't actually, you know, start testing it out. So um, for me, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was a pretty amazing moment when I could get my hands in a, on a video camera and start, you know, practicing that kind of that craft. Um, yeah, so I, I did like art, studio art, graphics and media and then English as well. So like that was my that was my year 12 subject list. Right. So it was, it was all art based. Yeah, like yeah. There was nothing I was doing that wasn't revolving around art. And so it was all, my eggs were in the, in the one basket from a very young age. So whilst I didn't know that I wanted to be a clay animator at that point, I was pretty passionate about it. And so, and you know, I thought I was going to do claymation for the rest of my life as well. Like that, that was, that was it for me mm. um, at one point, but then I then I kind of fell in love with live action filmmaking and, and you know just that that sort of started catching fire I guess but uh, and my interests were kind of diverted but um, your parents were supportive of your endeavours I have the, the most amazing set of parents yeah they're incredible and they have always they're like well you know if you don't like and dad, dad was the same like when dad was a kid his, his dad wanted him to go into banking and dad's like well no, I really like animals I want to work with animals I'm going to be a zookeeper he's like well that's not going to pay well like it's a terrible job like you know and, and dad didn't care and he just followed his heart and his passion and, and you know and I think as a result of that you, you if, if you don't follow your passion then I guess you sort of you always have this this kind of little piece of you that doesn't quite uh, that isn't quite happy I guess and, and for me I mean, I work sort of 18 hour days, 20 hour days, no worries at all. And I do these, do that most days because it's my passion. It's my hobby. If I wasn't, if I was working a dead end job or a job that I didn't like, I'd be coming home 
to do my hobby anyway. I'd still be coming home to like try and write my script or try and you know finish off my next claymation or whatever the case may be. Um, it definitely becomes more of a lifestyle than a uh, a job. Yeah, yeah, and it, it just doesn't feel like work. It doesn't mm. it doesn't feel like I'm I'm stuck in the grind. It's like this is awesome. This is this is my life. This is crazy that I've actually got to a point <laughs> where people are paying me money to to do this stuff. Yeah. Um, and to and, go internationally and do it. And to go internationally and do it, yeah, which is crazier again. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. So coming out of high school then, you started working for ABC? Uh, yeah, I did a little stint. So out of high school, went to uni, went to RMIT and studied animation. And we were the kind of the guinea pigs of the animation course there. It was the bachelor course. When, when, and, um, when was that? Oh, oh, I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> like 2005 or something like that. I'm not sure right. exactly, but um, maybe 2004, yeah. Um, but, um, we're the guinea pigs of that bachelor course. So that hadn't been run before. So we were sort of just flying by the seat of our pants really. And, and the course was great, but there was no clay animation component to it. So, um, I learned a lot about the animation principles, but then had to do all the trial and error, um, with claymation outside of that. So, um, I had this little studio set up in my uncle's garage down in Bacchus Marsh. Um, and during uni, um, like I had this kind of funny project called Rom the Zookeeper, which was based on my dad. Um, and dad would, um, like during production, I was just so consumed by the process. You know, I had to do like two shots a day because there's a strict timeline. So I'd be down there animating, you know, from from sun up till sundown and then, then some. Um, so dad would literally just bring my pajamas down and like my, like a bowl of pasta or something, <laughs> like some ravioli. <laughs> And like I'd just crash in the beanbag in the studio and had this little oil burner, oil burner heater, and like I'd just sleep there, wake up, and my nan and pop lived next door as well, so I'd go there for breakfast and then come back and start <laughs> animating again. We did this for like six months, wow, um, to get my film out. But then that film um, went on to do pretty well internationally. It kind of got into Annecy Animation Festival, which is the biggest animation festival in the world, and it just opened my eyes to like the the world that's out there and. Um, it was, a, it was a pretty amazing moment. That was my goal when I was making the film. I, I said to myself, I want to get into Annecy. And then when it actually kind of came to fruition, I was pretty blessed. I was pretty excited. Mm. I think I cried. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, again, that's another sort of example of, you know, just putting one foot in front of the other. Because, yeah. you know, I, I could imagine that, you know, committing to a production like that and something that's going to take six months could seem like such a daunting kind of prospect. But... And then probably in the in the in the mix of it as well, you know, it's kind of probably seeming endless until you get to that sort of light at the end of the tunnel moment. Um, but I guess you're you're so convinced that this is the right thing to be doing in that at that period of time that there's no other really no other choice. I think that's the great thing about any um, creative undertaking. It's like if if you're so incredibly passionate about something, nothing will stand in your way of making it. Um, and I think I think to be so utterly consumed by something is is there's something romantic about that. And I think you know when I was making that film, it, it was the most important thing in my world at that time. And I think every time I do make something, even if it's a music video, like everything else, my my world, my social life, my family, like it all kind of horribly fades. Like it, it's just like I become so myopic and so focused. Um, and you know I don't know if that's a good thing necessarily, but like it does completely and utterly consume me. Um, you know, even if it is for a short period of time. But and a lot of the time, you know, especially with kind of big commercials and fast turnarounds, there is very little time to actually have a social life or do anything else in your world at all. So often it is, there is no choice but to be utterly consumed by it. Um, 
you know, at least on commercials, you're properly remunerated for it. But on, on a music video, you might make 200 bucks for like two months worth of work. <laughs> so it's like, it's not quite the, quite the payoff you want. But, um, but I guess they have their value in so far as, you know, expanding your portfolio. And perhaps that's not as significant for you guys now, but I'm sure when you started... Oh yeah, wow, that was mm. you know that was a really important kind of factor. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're on the money there. It's sort of in the early days, it was about kind of getting onto the you know going from like we sort of started with like you know a thousand dollars as a budget, and you know that 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 that, that music video that I did for a thousand dollars took me, I think six months to make. Mm. So that was for a band. The first music video I did was for a band called All India Radio, um, and I sort of did this technique that that hadn't really been done before it was kind of like painting the sky with with torches colored torches and it's kind of effectively a long exposure technique where we take one frame where you can draw or write your name in the sky or or, draw a kind of figure or whatever and then the long exposure will kind of you know capture that image what i then did was do that time and time again frame after frame um to form animated sequences so I'd kind of have like little rocks on the ground to like where my marker for the character was the frame before. Yeah. Um, and then I'd kind of use my body as my own unit of measurement when I'm drawing these characters in the sky. So the character, like the figure's knees might be um, where my knees are, but the character's head might stop where my neck is. So I kind of had this, I'd be, you know, click your torch on, you draw this image in the sky and then you'd kind of work out the next frame. You'd go back to your camera, review it, make sure it was all good, then walk back to your spot, move your little rocks on the ground. It's incredible. Then, so I did this for six months. Um, just going out in the nighttime by myself, just yeah, drawing drawing with torches in the middle of Melbourne winter. You're insane. <laughs> yeah, but it's, that it's but amazing. that that technique um, sort of did. I mean, back in the days, very early days of YouTube, it went viral. You know, like got a million hits or whatever. Mm. Um, and you know, back in the early days of YouTube, that was a lot. Um, and you know, it got screened at the Guggenheim, and it did really really well. It kind of went out into the world, and people like there were kind of people contacting us for commercials like kind of like wanting to to get this technique done so it's sort of it was it was six months of time well invested but um that was in the very very early days of of oh wow when when i had no idea about business i had no idea about how to get clients and how to actually pay rent really like i just i just took took a big um big leap of faith and that was kind of again the way oh wow operated and the philosophy that underpinned our work it's it's sort of we kept on doing what we believed to be pretty amazing or pretty innovative kind of music videos and I just had this really really strong through line that was like someone is eventually going to see it and someone is eventually going to see our backlog of work and someone's eventually going to be like yeah we want to we want to work with you and you know whether that was Arcade Fire or whether that was like you know um, a manager or, or, or somebody or a representation or whatever it was an agent I just had this blind faith that it would all work out if we kept on investing our time and kept on making cutting edge work. It would just eventually build a brand to the point where we could, you know, do do commercials and high level commercials and, you know, go forth and conquer. Yeah. What was the, when was the kind of moment, I guess, where you decided to start this company? Yeah, so that was a weird one. So I went from, I went from, um, from uni, I went uh, and started work on some Cadbury commercials, the old Wouldn't It Be Nice campaign with the little oh, yeah. chocolate men. Um, so I did a little bit of work on, on those. And then I went to the ABC for six months and did some part-time work as an animator there. Um, which is, what were you working on there? Uh, not on any particular show. I was doing like a lot, a lot of their kind of um, interstitial animation for little adverts and bits and pieces and um, did some kind of cool claymation stuff. And yeah, it was, it was really, really cruisy, like um, great, great kind of, I was on the ABC Kids team, so we just had a really, really beautiful group of people there and 
was very friendly and very fun and um, often I just kind of animate from home. So I'd, like had a little claymation set up in my, my bedroom at home and um, I sort of had this like huge sets kind of built wall to wall in there. Um, yeah, but, but I think um, it was sort of after Mary and Max where I decided to start my own thing. So I went, after I come back from Annecy, Adam wanted me as a, as a lead sculptor on Mary and Max. Um, so you he, obviously film. kept in touch with him over the yeah, years. Yeah, indeed, yeah. yeah. Um, so formed quite a strong friendship with Adam actually um, up until that point. And then... Obviously, that's solidified since as well. But I worked on Mary Max for about a year and it was the most amazing production, huge learning curve um, and such a beautiful, beautiful film that I'm incredibly proud to be a part of. Um, but by the same token, on that production, I realized that I'm actually a terrible employee. <laughs> and like, you know, there'd be days where I'd wake up, like I'd sleep under my desk because I'd be hungover from the night before or I'd just like... I had this really weird, I think, you know, if I was to be honest with myself and I haven't got this properly diagnosed, but I think I've just got ADHD or something like that. Like I don't focus very well. Mm. Uh, I jump all over the place and I want multiple projects to be working on at any given time. And um, yeah, it was, it was very, very difficult being creative from the hours of nine to five for me. It was sort of like rock up, be creative, go home. Um, And, you know, often it was sort of like, we need this character done by 3 p.m. It's like, well, it's two hours away. And you're like, I usually get given five days for a character. Why is it? And it's like, well, we just had, a, we had a, you know, the, the scheduling didn't work out. We need this character now. And it's like, shit. So it's like being, it was kind of like at times like being creative with the gun to your head. Um, and um, it was, it was just tricky for me. I just kind of, I realized through that process. Cause I, I think, you know, prior to that film, if someone had have said to me, like, you know, if you could do claymation for the rest of your life and if you could do, um, you know, work on, on films, claymation films for the rest of your life. Here's, here's the contract. Will you sign? I would have been like, absolutely. Yes. Um, but after that project, I'm like, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can be a part of the traveling circus. That is, um, the clay animated film world. <laughs> Cause it's, you know, there's not, there's nothing that gets made in Australian claymation. And there's, there's only a few places that make it internationally. So, um, yeah, I just, I just, after that film, I, I kind of realized that I wanted to tell my own stories and I wanted to, um, to be in control of my own destiny a little more. So I started Oh Yeah Wow um, with the intention of whoever did end up joining the team, uh, we could set our own times and, and start times. And that's still in place to, to this day. So It's just about getting the work done. It doesn't matter when or how. Precisely. So everyone's, everyone's aware of what they need to do. Um, so if there's a project in, then, you know, you have to obviously just can't kind of tap out it. 2 p.m. or whatever yeah, but yeah. Um, some guys don't come in till 2 p.m. like me personally I don't really like working until about 11 or 12 or 1 like and often I don't even wake up till then so but I, I work through till 6 a.m. some mornings so um, I think it's just about what works for the individual and obviously there are times where you have to kind of um, my producer Christina she she works in the morning so she takes the morning shift to value well and then I kind of take the late shift so it's like there's an overlap in the middle where we obviously have to kind of discuss the kind of the, the goings on but um, for, for, it works pretty well um, and I think it works better for the individuals as well like you know I've had the same team for um, I mean some of them have been with me for like 10 years now so it's um, it's pretty crazy to think that like you know normally workplaces have a, a pretty high turnover um, whereas we've kind of kept the same crew the same collective for ever since its inception in fact so so did you did you start it yourself or was it a, a group of people that sort of I, I did originally start it myself but um but then you know my, my best friend Seamus he kind of came on board and he was a driving force between uh, a driving force behind the company becoming a company like 
I don't think without Seamus and certainly the involvement of a few of the other guys that um, it would have ever kind of got to a professional standard. Like, <laughs> I, and you know, again, like I'm, I'm still, I'm still not, I'm not really a guy that should ever, ever got into this business to run a business. And it's sort of, it was kind of a happy accident, I guess, that OUL came to be. I, I'm on the day to day. I'm kind of more holistically um, concerned with like, you know, the branding and, getting more work in and, and the creative direction of things, making sure that they're of a certain quality before they go out the door. That's kind of more my role and, and what I love doing and the management and the the tax and all that sort of stuff was never my forte. Um, like I didn't look at the bank balance. I, I, I was scared to look at the bank balance for the most part when I was running that company, or, you know, in the early days of running that already in really well. So it was, I was just petrified to look at the bank balance for the fear that it might be. And then when I did, it was just like, it was frightening. Like, oh my God, we've got one, one month worth of rent left in the bank. Like, <laughs> shit, what are we going to like? And then you have to kind of go and get five jobs in quickly to try and <laughs> stay afloat. But yeah, I, I, was, I was pretty bad at running the company. So um, I guess we all had our kind of individual roles and, and that's, they're still in place to this day as well. Like there are people that, I guess, pick me up where I fall down and vice versa, you know. Um, we have, yeah, skill sets that are complementary and, um, across across the five or six of us, they sort of all tend, we, we tend to kind of get everything done we need to. Mm. What was the, uh, I guess, the ethos when you when you started it and how has that evolved? Yeah, well, I mean, I've kind of already touched on a little bit of that, but we, we tried to do the best work we could, eh? but then we also, we also were all equals. So there was no, it was a non-hierarchical sort of structure in the beginning. Um, and, and again, so we might have a $10,000 budget that we split equally three ways. Um, and, and as it went on, that that became more unfair, I think, because you you know you did want to be paid for your time working as a manager. Um, and you know, back in the early days too, because we didn't have a heap of jobs on. Sometimes we might have like you know a period where two projects would come through at one given time, and then have a little bit of downturn for maybe two weeks or a month or something. Um, so it wasn't as consistent as it is now. Um, so. Yeah, um, it was kind of it was kind of the guys who were working as animators or as as kind of VFX guys would have a lot of downtime, and so they could kind of go off and watch movies and play video games, and you'd just be really jealous of, of that because you're like, <laughs> I have to go and do all the emails and find new work and like you know blah 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 and and and, and do all the tax and keep all that sort of stuff in line. So when you had downtime, it wasn't really downtime. It was, it was the time that you could kind of you know, um, allocate to, to life admin and, and the business admin. So um, as it went on, you kind of sort of started to realize like I do need to at some point value this time and pay myself for this time. So the company kind of evolved um, to the point where we're like, okay, well, we need to change this structure. It's no longer, you know, an equal share kind of equal split kind of idea. It's, it's the need to be funds allocated for management and producer fees and, and we started to become a real business and a real a, a more more of a real business than than we were anyway. I mean, we're still not. I still don't consider this place like um, a, a proper business, but right. <laughs> it's, it, 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 it is. It very much is. Like we're, we're you know we're we're doing it now, but mm. I don't know. There's still this. It still just feels like we're in the old garage, just doing our thing. Yeah. Um, I guess when you do what you love, that's the way that it feels. Yeah, and again, like surrounded by my best mates as well. It's sort of I'm very blessed to have talented friends and friends that share the same interests as me and like those guys are still with me today it's it's pretty amazing yeah yeah i noticed a quote behind uh behind you on the whiteboard there oh, don't read that out <laughs> <laughs> all right 
Um, There's a lot of quotes that, that are kind of, you know, we used to have a quote board in the toilet. We used to just write them on the wall. Um, and there's some crackers in there. Like Seamus had one, which was, um, one can never truly own a peacock. That was my favorite quote that he right. had. <laughs> so you guys, you know, you started out making these um, music videos that were quite cutting edge just in terms of the, your, your approach, I guess, to the craft. You know, you collaborated with some amazing artists like um, like Gautier. I know yeah. you, you guys um, worked with when he was um, uh, starting out as well. What was, I guess, the tipping point for you from, you know, taking your taking the company into that new level where you are um, actually consistently getting lots of work in working on commercial projects and commercials as well as music videos? Um, well, I think back in the day... That that Gautier clip we did, which was Easy Way Out, um, we poured nine months worth of work into that. Um, so it was a team of about five of us. Again, just just the crew, just giving our all. Uh, what, and how trying are you, to, sorry to, to cut you off, how are you managing to kind of sustain your life while you're working on these really long sort of projects? Um, great question. I don't know how, how we managed to get by. I mean, because, you know, music video budgets are not big, generally speaking. And I think... Um, that project with, with Wally and Gautier was maybe around $15,000 perhaps, I think, you know, um, maybe less, but could possibly have been far less. And, you know, at the time my studio rent was about, um, I don't know, maybe, uh, what is it, like two grand a month or something. So when you work over nine months on the one project, uh, with the one set taking up your entire studio, that obviously, is not great for business. That's that's a bad business move, right? <laughs> but again, like, uh, you know, I, I'd been following Wally's stuff and following Gotcha for a long time and just had this real belief in this album. I just kind of, I had this underlining kind of, I, I just knew he was going to crack it. I knew it was going to blow up and um, really loved his tunes. And obviously in Australia, he had a really strong presence. So I, even if it didn't kind of catch fire internationally, it was like still an Australian soil. It's a pretty big name to kind of, to get. And that would in turn lead to other work. So at the time, I was like, I just want to do the best possible job I can on this on this clip, um, so that that might, you know, kind of lead to other opportunities. Um, didn't intend to spend nine months on it, but that's just the way it worked out. So it was literally my baby. But we built the entire set in our studio. It was wall to wall. We had to kind of like strafe down the <laughs> side of the studio to get to the back room and the offices and the bathrooms. And um, um, our studio fridge was actually part of the set. Like I just, we art directed it ourselves. We didn't even know what an art director was at this point in time, right? Um, and likewise with the cinematographer, we didn't, we didn't, we kind of, we were still animators at this point. We weren't live action kids. We didn't have a clue about live action. So we just kind of like made it up on the fly and we kind of just, we're just like, okay, that looks good. Yeah, cool. Let's go with that. Um, and, you know, and we'd sort of get Wally in for a couple of days here and there. Then we'd go and animate after he'd left and then we'd kind of get him back and then we'd sort of would turn the whole set over, would kind of dirty it, would light it on fire, would do whatever needed to happen for the evolution of the next pass. But um, yeah, that, and again, it could have it could have just fallen down and been a complete waste of time, but we put so much effort into it that I think it was just just this kind of standout piece of work in the music video world that was like, wow, how how much work went into this? Like, and, and how did you do it? Like the, the amalgamation of live action and stop motion um, and that was a nightmare from a motion control point of view. Um, but it was something that hadn't really been seen before. So, um, it, it kind of, it kind of, uh, put us out into the world and, and, you know, and internationally kind of put us on the map. 
Um, had a lot of offers, you know, that's Aloe Black and a whole bunch of other guys kind of come off the back of that. Um, and then people sort of started coming to us wanting live action music videos. Um, well, and, and we're just kind of like, what, what, why do they want us to do that? We're, we're animators. <laughs> like, you know, like they, they give me us a three week turnaround, like three weeks. We can't make a music video in three weeks. The last one took us nine months. What? I'm like, Oh shit. They want us to use like cameras and actors and, oh, okay. And so we had this, like, you know, had a couple of those that came in. Um, and yeah, we just thought, you know what, let's just do it. Let's, let's see how we go. Let's try and be live action filmmakers, <laughs> put that cap on. And the most amazing thing about, I guess, my, my um, career pathway has been the fact that the Australian music industry has effectively paid for my tuition in film. Like I've, I, I never learned film at uni. I never knew anything about cameras or lenses or actors or staging or, you know, breaking, you know, breaking the line, et cetera. It was just, I had no idea about any of this stuff. And so I've learned all that while shooting music videos and what feels like many hundreds of them, um, you know, in the live action stratosphere. And so whilst music videos, you might, you might make a hundred dollars from, again, from a month's worth of work or two months worth of work. Um, at least I wasn't paying for those projects. Someone was paying me to make them and paying me to make mistakes along the way, along the way as well. So, um, it wasn't always smooth, but, um, but by and large, we, we aced most of the projects. We kind of, we, we tackled them pretty well and we, we learned more and more as we went on, but, and um, I think you guys always sort of put that, uh, that flavor that you have in terms of making things that were like, it is rare that you would see a music video from you guys that was just a couple of normal people in a normal situation. Yeah. We try to take our, our kind of crazier sensibilities across with us. Um, and, and again, making stuff that, that wasn't normal, making stuff mm. that wasn't seen, making stuff that, that just sat, um, just set, set a little different from everything else. Like just kind of creating a little, a little niche for ourselves. Um, um, be that through VFX or be that through kind of art direction or whatever the case may be, but just try to stand out from the pack. Really? That Hudson and Troop, uh, clip that you guys made for frameless was definitely amongst the best music videos. I think I've seen, I love it. Watched it over and over again oh, when I, when it came out. Um, um, that's you in the, yeah. in, in the big, t- and did you learn, sign language yeah thing. i learned i learned Auslan for um uh for i think about three months wow I mean, it, it was i didn't learn Auslan um like the whole kind of all the signs i didn't, I didn't kind of study but I, I learned the choreography for the lyrics to the song mm. and even that took three months to kind of learn and get right um but yeah we, we sort of like cut it out um we learned uh well sorry we had um it was a one-day shoot. It was about a 24... Oh, no, it wasn't a 24-hour shoot. It was, it was about an 18-hour shoot, I think, to get that in the can. Mm. The shoot start was at, uh, I think, 6 o'clock for, for sun up, get some sunrise shots. And I had to be at the studio for the application of all the prosthetics to my face uh, and get into the monster suit at uh, 11 o'clock at night. So <laughs> I didn't sleep at all. And I was directing with, with my friend Goldie out of this, this monster suit. Um, and I was just that, that day it happened to be I think it was 37 degrees as well Jesus. so this huge furry monster suit on with prosthetics stuck to my face in sweltering heat <laughs> um, and there's kind of like some great behind the scenes photos of me like with just ice packs up my shirt and like um, just like eating zuper dupers and <laughs> just trying to stay cool um, like just fans on my face the entire time every time I wasn't on camera I was just basically trying to drench myself in ice but um, 
yeah, it was a pretty great clip. I mean, it, it, it was a lot of fun to shoot, a lot of fun to kind of um, conceptualize for. Um, mm. But again, like trying to do something weird and different and, and, and sticking to kind of things that we felt really passionately about. Like I really, really love prosthetics and old school puppetry. So like Jim Henson's a massive inspiration of mine um, and the Henson Company stuff. So like, yeah, just kind of, again, like someone's giving you, you know, X amount of dollars and you're like, okay, well, I might not make any money off this, but shit, we get to make a monster. That's cool. Like, mm. you know, that's that's rad. Um, and I, I literally think we, the whole crew ate fish and chips um, and that was pretty much it and some zuba-dubas. I think that was all we could afford outside of this monster suit. Like it took all of our resources, um, which is more than fair because it's an expensive suit to build and it's, it's a lot of work that goes into it. But um, but it, that you, was that was the, the ethos really. It's just like, well, cool. We get to make a monster. We get to experiment with something we haven't done before. Let's Let's give it our all yeah and you create something that in a sense becomes timeless as well i think hopefully yeah i yeah. mean i look back on it now and go like it's it's pretty rough around the edges yeah, like, yeah. You know, if, I, if i could do it differently i would and if i could do it again i'd, I'd do things very very differently but um but you know for the time and place i think it was it was pretty cutting edge and it was pretty cool mm. um yeah so in recent times um oh yeah wow's moved into a, some more sort of narrative based stuff as well you mentioned the nickelodeon show yep and you made a short called Gary and Gabe as well. Yeah. Uh, and what's been the kind of process of making that transition? You mentioned you got a couple of features um, in the pipeline as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for me, it's like narrative has always been the end game. Um, we just strayed away from it for so long because we needed to make money to live. Um, and when I just kind of first come out of university, I wasn't writing as well as I am now. And I was writing kind of content that was getting knocked back for funding and all that sort of thing. And I became a little bit disenchanted or disheartened um, by, you know, Screen Australia repeatedly, like saying this is shit, you know. Mm. Um, know that feeling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, which is totally fine, understandable, because, you know, if I look back on those scripts, they're not, they're not nearly as tight as they needed to be. Absolutely. Um, and I probably didn't have the skill sets to kind of bring them to fruition anyway. Um, but, but, yeah, now I've kind of, you know, been directing for almost 10 years now. So it's sort of getting to the point where I'm like, okay, well, I want to return to live action, also return to narrative filmmaking, um, tell stories and um, and in kind of, yeah, get back into that world. Because I mean, music videos are great, but you're ultimately making a narrative for someone else's music. It's a, it's a device, it's commercial in itself. Um, and then commercials are obviously like, they enable you to play some pretty cool toys and explore some pretty cool techniques or, um, you know, uh, have some cash to splash. But um, But ultimately you've got like, whole you know agency and client above you that dictate how it ultimately turn out and sometimes the commercials don't turn out how you want them to like you have very little control of the final outcome it's just like sometimes um sometimes you're absolutely aligned and it's fine but other times you're like wow that's that's a bad decision i i, I can't get around that um so that and that's that's kind of ultimately the process you're, you're employed as a director and there are other people making decisions on that project as well but with with the narrative stuff, I'm, I'm just very, very, very keen to kind of get back to a point where I'm telling my own stories and telling them in the way that I want to. Um, and, and getting back to the roots of what Aya Wow was as well. I mean, it's, um, again, going back to making things that, that, that stand out from the pack a little. And um, a few of my feature film concepts, are, I think, fall into that, fall under that umbrella where they're... Um, yeah, where they're pretty crazy concepts and I think they will kind of cut through the noise of, of a lot of the stuff that's on the market, especially in the Australian market. I think, you know, I mean, a lot of people complain about Australia being so drama heavy, blah, blah, blah. And um, 
on one hand, I agree with it, but on the other hand, I think it's Australia is it still punches above its weight for the amount of funding that's out there for it. Um, but yeah, I, I want. I mean, my my feature film that I'm kind of just finished writing now is um, is is basically a cross between Jurassic Park and Stand by Me. Right. Okay, um, cool. Yeah, it's about a group of little <laughs> brats that that find and befriend a dinosaur. So. Um, you know, just that premise alone, I think, sets itself apart from anything else that's been produced in Australia before. Like, it's, yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit crazy. Yeah. It's like, you know, I want to build animatronic puppeteer dinosaurs. That's, that's what I want to do with my money. Um, that's cool. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So it, it should, in theory, be kind of, you know, something that's pretty different. Um, and yeah, I, I feel like I've got something to bring to the narrative world. So that's where I want to return to. Yeah. How significant is it for you to be, you know, using your own kind of stories and experience uh, in everything that you're creating. Um, yeah, I mean, on, on that script, like that, as I said before, is is basically my childhood. It's about a group of kids and they're absolute little punk rock brats and they they find and befriend this dinosaur. And whilst we never found a dinosaur, um, <laughs> we you know, like there's a lot of imagination that kind of went into my childhood. And um, I also just kind of, I think my childhood, you know, just growing up in a, in a rural community was different from from kids that live in the city and it's a different kind of narrative that we've seen before in an in, in Australian kind of circuit as well and um, I, I was prior to writing I kind of I sat down and, and sort of asked myself what do I care about what did I love about my childhood like what did I what stories do I really gravitate towards and what things really interest me and intrigue me and you know like always really loved aliens and monsters and dinosaurs i mean there's this there's pictures of me photos of me as a kid at three years old like dressed in complete dinosaur clothing like my mum had made me this matching like tracksuit with like patchwork dinosaurs on the bottoms and top and then i had like like converse chuck taylors with dinosaurs all over them like i was just obsessed um and like you know as an adult you kind of you just sort of think back about what you what you're really passionate about and what you really love in life and then how that then directs you on to potentially directs you on to what you want to work on and what you want to create. And um, that's how I sort of stumbled across this idea. I sort of just I sat myself down and thought, well, what do I want to tell? What's the story I want to tell? What do I feel passionate about? And that's kind of how that narrative came about, you know, a blending of the fun of my childhood with, with my passion for dinosaurs. Mm. <laughs> what do you think it is about uh, these kind of mythological creatures, I guess, that, that you're drawn to? Sure, I think I think it is just the desire. Like I think in Back of Smash, there was a desire to be anywhere but here. In some respects, I mean, I, I really love my childhood. Don't get me wrong, but there was there had to be this imaginative element. I think to kind of break out of the mundanity a little. Um, it was it was a pretty quiet town, so um, I'd just sort of be. I'd always be drawing monsters and always be drawing kind of just weird kind of creatures and things. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I'm not sure, um, but. I know. I think there's something really human about monsters that um, is often missed. Um, and you know, with, with that Hudson and Troop clip, like I, I liked breathing humanity into into a creature that could be otherwise misinterpreted from afar, um, and, and giving them some kind of um, some character and some um, some empathy and all the rest. Mm. Yeah, mm. The, the the sequence sort of towards the end where he's just trashing the room. Yeah, it's like it was. Uh, definitely a, a huge kind of sense of humanity in the character by that sort of point and the kind of frustration of being misunderstood yeah i actually fractured my knuckle um during that sequence <laughs> really? yeah i was right. trying to punch a hole in the back of the bookcase yeah 
And um, I did it a couple of times and it was like ply board so you can punch through it really easy. Um, but then on my third punch or second punch, I um, hit the kind of the horizontal bookshelf part and just, oh man, it hurts so bad. <laughs> <laughs> so there's like this behind the scenes shots of those ice packs and zooper doopers just wrapped around my knuckle, just being like trying to keep the swelling down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, um, but yeah, you know, there, there was kind of, yeah, I, I like giving human elements to monsters. I think there's, there's something in that. Mm. Um, and even with the dinosaurs that I'm kind of wanting to create, like there's an element of humanity about them. There's an element of connection between humanity and them that I think is really interesting. And I think a lot of that comes from, I think, dad as well. Um, you know, as I said before, dad worked in these crazy circumstances, was attacked by lions and tigers and had wild, wild stories. And there's something kind of really, I don't know, like particularly in what I'm writing now with the Jurassic Park Stand By Me stuff, it's like... Um, there's something really alluring to me about connecting with a wild beast or kind of um, connecting with something you shouldn't. Um, they're kind of like themes and things I want to explore. Just how, because sometimes like you do have these kind of mystical connections with it, with an animal, a white animal. Like I remember there's one night that I like met this little baby fox in the middle of the street. I was walking home drunk and there's this little baby fox and I just walked over to it and we just hung out and we just like looked at each other for like five minutes. Huh. And I was like, this is crazy. Like, it's just a fox. It's so simple, right? Yeah. And like, you know, taking that back to dad, like, you know, there's photos of dad, like eating his lunch with his arm around a tiger, you know, just eating his lunch with a tiger. Like, and that's nuts. Like that the fact nuts. that you can kind of form, I mean, that tiger went on to attack him and almost kill him twice. Right. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> not immediately after that photo. Because he wanted half of his sandwich. Probably, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Ham sandwich. Um, <laughs> But yeah, you know, I think there's something so wild and so kind of, again, kind of romantic about that. Um, and I kind of, yeah. So I think it's, I think it's probably that, that influence of dad that's kind of influenced the film in some respects. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I look forward to seeing it come to life. Yeah, five years. Yeah, <laughs> at least. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, hopefully not. But um, thank you so much, Darcy, for inviting me into your, into your warehouse. It's really just incredible space. Oh, um, thanks very much, man. I, I finish all of my uh, podcasts, or well, before I do finish, if, uh, if anyone wants to see all of the m- sort of music videos that we've been talking about and things like that, uh, ohyearwow.com will get you those. Um, and now I go on to my last question, which sure. is, what makes you silly? What makes me silly? What makes you silly? I don't think I can tell you all the things that make me silly on, on this podcast, <laughs> but um, there are a lot of things that make me a bit weird. Um, Oh shit! You put me on the spot. I think I think I'm a big kid still. Like I love, like I'm I'm again kind of bounce off walls. I've got energy to the cows come home. I love fireworks. I love dinosaurs. Like I love like playing pinball. I've got two pinballs here. Like and I like we're in Sydney um, on Monday and like our meeting finished early, so I dragged my producer along to a pinball bar. <laughs> <laughs> like I just really, really love, and I love gaming and I love cinema and like, I just, I love anything with kind of a childlike twist to it. So, um, I don't know. I just, I feel like I'm a, a small child getting to live his dream here. Basically. I don't think I've matured that much since I was that 16 year old boy in his uncle's garage making claymation. I feel like I'm still have this wide eyed wonder about the world. Yeah. Um, just figured I, out a way to get paid to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So I just try and retain that. So yeah. I guess that's what makes me silly. I've still, I still go to trampoline parks and do all sorts of kind of little, like kids, things that little kids typically do. Mm. <laughs> I'm wearing a wrestling hat. Yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite cool. Thank you so much, Darcy. No worries, man. Thanks a bunch.